This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, this morning we are going to continue this third and final section in Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia that we're calling What Makes Us Family. And we began this final section in chapter 5 uh, by seeing how to live in this freedom that Christ has secured for us. Free of these legalistic structures that we're prone to rely on in order to, to keep us up and keep us from falling into sin. And instead, what we saw in the second week was that we we're called to live by His Spirit. And this morning, he's, Paul is going to show us that living in this freedom by the power and guiding of His Spirit, that it leads to us living for the good of one another. Now, that's our title of our sermon this morning, Living for the Good of One Another. And Paul this morning, he's going to show us how we live as individual members in this greater family of God. And he's going to do this by showing us four ways that our faith in Jesus Christ, our faith that makes us family, how it works through love for others, living for the good of others. And each of these four things is going to have two parts to it. There's going to be a, a corporate aspect uh, of this mutual uh, responsibility that we have for one another. And then there's going to be an individual aspect of a personal reflection that we're going to look at as well. And so four ways we live for the good of one another. Here's number one, let us restore one another gently. All right, let us restore one another back to the family of God, but let's do it gently. And so let's begin with this corporate aspect, this mutual responsibility we have for one another. And so if you haven't already, let's open up our Bibles, uh, New Testament book of Galatians, and uh, we're going to pick up uh, where we left off in chapter 5, verse 26, where Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Right away, he begins with a warning here, a warning against becoming uh, conceited which uh, the, the original Greek word, it literally just means empty praise. And, and so think of it like this. It's, it's essentially bragging about something that doesn't exist, that never happened. For example, it would be like me standing before you this morning bragging about that dunk that I threw down on Tim last week when we were playing basketball. I didn't know you were going to laugh at that. Uh, <laughs> woo! Uh, it would be like me bragging about having broken the five-minute mile last week. Because I didn't do any of that, at least not last week. One of y'all did. Where, he's not here. He's, okay, one of y'all did. I didn't. But conceit, what it does is it comes, from this, it comes from this deep insecurity about who we are. And it leads us to making things up to validate ourselves, to prove ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. And what Paul says here is that this insecurity, it often plays out in two different ways. It plays out, one, by provoking one another from this superiority complex within us that leads towards just outright hostility towards others, right? Building ourselves up by, by tearing others down, believing that they are somehow less than you. We provoke one another, but we also, he says, it leads to envying one another, a inferiority complex, kind of the other side of this coin, which leads to this jealousy towards others, building ourselves up by, by taking from others, believing that what they have is rightfully ours. 
And what he's saying here in this warning is let's not be so concerned with ourselves. Let's not be so worried about what others think of us that we become combative of each, with each other and jealous of each other, treating each other as, as competition rather than community, rather than family. And when we look around this room, when we look at the church, right, there's, no, there's no real hierarchy. Right? There's no corporate ladder to climb like you may be in pursuit of in your job. It, instead, what, what he told us in chapter 3 is that there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, male or female, rich or poor, on and on and on. Because we are all one in Christ. So instead of tearing others down, instead of kicking others while they're down, just to make us feel better about ourselves, he's calling us to, to look out for the good of one another, to help one another up when we've fallen. And so he begins chapter 6 saying then, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, he's not referring to here someone caught in some sort of hidden habitual sin. This isn't like a gotcha moment for someone. No, this is about us observing someone falling rather than living in the freedom that Christ has secured, rather than being led by the Spirit, following, falling to, to one side towards that side of legalism or falling to that other side of falling back into sin. This, this slow drift, drifting further and further away from God and away from each other, away from his people, away from the church. And, and it's kind of like this. Um, when we're driving as a family, I do like 102% of the driving because I get car sick so easily, so I just drive. And, uh, but Jill, she's not, um, she's not an idle uh, spectator. She's an active participant as I drive because she's my co-pilot. And so I have a habit. I got this from my dad. I have a habit of looking at everything but the road. There's a lot of pretty things to see, uh, unless you're on like 55 going to St. Louis and there's nothing. Um, but like you're driving through the rolling hills of Iowa, you've got cornfields and soybean fields and alfalfa fields and hogs and cattle, like all this great stuff. And I want to look at it. And then on top of that, we play this game. We play the alphabet game when we're driving, where we've got to find each letter A to Z in order in some sort of sign or license plate out there. And as we're doing this, I have a habit of drifting ever so slowly, right? I'm either drifting into the other lane or I'm drifting into the ditch. Not into it, but close to it. Now imagine if my beautiful, lovely co-pilot sitting next to me, imagine if she sensed me drifting and she just let me go. Like, how loving would that be? It wouldn't be, right? It would be devastating. It'd be devastating to me, It'd be devastating to her and the boys. It'd be devastating to everyone that I'm hitting as I go into the ditch or the other lane. And so what Paul's saying here is that um, those, that are, those that are drifting off, drifting off back into legalism, back into their prior life of sin, he's saying, if you see that, rather than sitting there doing nothing but eating popcorn and watching this movie play out in front of you, he says, those of you who are spiritual, He's not talking about super Christians. He's just talking about those of us who are filled and led by the Spirit. Those of you who are spiritual, that we need to step up and we need to speak out. Right? When we see others drifting, we need to confront them. We need to confront that sin. But notice he gives us a how. We don't confront that sin aggressively. 
We confront it gently, right? A fruit of the Spirit that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. We do this not by making assumptions about them, but asking questions. Not by wagging our finger in their face and telling them all the ways that they're wrong, but by coming up next to them and putting our arm around them and saying, hey, I, I've been noticing this lately. I don't know if you have, but I've been noticing this, and I just, I just want to check in. I want to see how you're doing. Man, isn't that what family does for one another? Looking out for one another? Right? Older siblings looking out for the younger siblings, so to speak? Right? The, church, the church should never ignore sin, agree? Agreed. Jason's in board with me. Church should never ignore sin. We always address the sin. We should never, we should never cover up sin. No, we should confront that sin. We don't, we don't leave sin hiding in the dark. No, we bring it out into the light. But we don't do it out of conceit. We don't do it to provoke one another. We don't do it to shame or humiliate one another. We do it, he says, in hopes of restoring our sibling restoring our fallen sibling, restoring them in their walk with Christ, restoring them in their reliance on the Spirit, restoring their relationship with God and with His family. And we do this by praying that they would recognize that sin, recognize the danger that they are in when you talk with them, that they would, that they would feel remorse over that sin, and that they would repent of that sin, leading to reconciliation with those they've sinned against, and ultimately, God willing, restoration back into the family. And this is another one of those parts of a sermon where I feel like there's a big asterisk that we have to have here. I need to clarify that like, sin comes with consequences, doesn't it? Sin comes with consequences, and forgiveness doesn't necessarily just wipe all of that away. Things won't always be restored to the way things were, will they? People won't always be restored back to the prior position, as an example, especially in the case of things like abuse and misuse. But yet we have a mutual responsibility to one another as brothers and sisters, as family to reach out to our siblings when they have fallen, when they have drifted away, but not doing it judgingly, doing it gently. Not, not abandoning them as they drift, but walking alongside of them. And what he goes on to show us is that we also have a, an individual aspect of this, a, uh, one of personal reflection. Because he goes on to say in verse 1, he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. He's saying, don't, don't allow that arrogance, that pride, that sense of superiority, don't allow that to build in your heart, thinking that you're, you're somehow better than those that you've confronted, better than them because you don't struggle with the sin that they struggle with. All that does is that leads you to becoming conceited. That leads to provoking one another. Instead, he's calling us here to reflect, to reflect on our own heart, our own sinful desires that exist in our heart about how we have fallen, about how we may have drifted away, leading to our own recognition of our sin and remorse over that sin and repentance of that sin. And as we do this, can I ask you all a favor? Like sometimes, um, and maybe this is just me, sometimes we're our own biggest critic, aren't we? And sometimes I think we are harder on ourselves than anyone. 
Sometimes I think we are wagging our finger at ourselves in the mirror. We are making accusations of ourselves. And so the favor I want to ask is, let's be as gentle with ourselves as we've been called to be with others. Amen? When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, if, if you can't even love yourself, it's going to be hard to love your neighbor. Let's be gentle on ourselves in this. And so let's keep watching ourselves, lest we be tempted, but with that same spirit of gentleness, as together we restore one another. Four ways we live for the good of one another. Here's number two. Let's bear one another's burdens selflessly. All right, let's bear one another's burdens, but let's do it selflessly. I think this whole point here can be summed up in the words of my favorite Canadian comedian, Red Green. Anybody remember Red Green? Oh, good. Okay. My dad had a pair of red-green suspenders that he would wear all the time. It, uh, if you don't know who we're talking about, it's like Canadian public television. It was great. But anyway, red-green's phrase was always, we're in this together. The other one was, what was it? If she doesn't find you handsome, she at least should at least find you handy. And like everything can be fixed with duct tape. But man, we are, I told you it's going to be one of those days. I warned you on the outset. We're all in this together now. But not as spectators of each other's lives, but as active participants in them. Because, so let's look at this mutual responsibility we have with one another. Look at verse 2 here. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, I keep thinking about when you, when you read a phrase like this, Paul's writing it for a reason, isn't he? He's not just rambling on random things. No, this was something that needed to be said to this church in this time. And, and, and what I imagine happening is that there were some in this church, in these churches, that were apparently more like the Jewish Pharisees that Jesus would often confront, as he did in Matthew 23, where, where he said that what they would do is they would, they would tie up heavy burdens that were hard to bear, and they would lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves were not willing to lift a finger to help. They did the exact opposite of what Paul was saying here, and I think that's what we see happening in this church. But like, life's hard enough as it is, amen? Like the last thing you need is somebody needlessly like pressing down on your shoulders, making it harder. Oh, instead of what we've been called to do is to come alongside and to help lighten their load. But what we see as we, as we unpack this is like to bear one another's burdens, I think it requires three things of us. Number one, I think it requires sacrifice, doesn't it? It requires sacrifice because bearing one another's burdens is inconvenient, right? It requires you setting one thing down in order to pick another thing up, doesn't it? It requires you setting that thing down that you were carrying on your own to carry this other thing that your brother or sister is unable to carry on their own. It's inconvenient, but it's also costly. It'll cost you your time, it'll cost you your resources, it'll even cost you part of yourself. Right? Bearing one another's burdens requires sacrifice, but not just that. Number two, it requires intimacy. It requires deep intimacy. It requires us to enter into each other's lives, enter into each other's stories, so that we know those burdens, that when they come, that they're too heavy to bear. They're, they're too heavy to carry. We need to be close enough to them that we can come alongside them, not to bear the load for them, but to bear the load with them, shoulder to shoulder. Bearing one another's burdens requires intimacy. But number three, a word that might scare us more than intimacy is it requires vulnerability. It requires us 
allowing others in, into our lives, into our story, allowing them to see how weak we are, how broken we are. And to see that our, our life is not as perfect as our Instagram profile conveys it to be. Sharing our story with them. Sharing our burdens with them. And trusting them. Trust might be the word that's even more scary than intimacy and vulnerability, isn't it? But this is how we fulfill the law of Christ. Right? For the whole law, Paul said in chapter 5, is fulfilled. The great commandment is left out in one word. And that one singular word is love. Right? Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and bearing one another's burdens, it's, it is one of the ways that we love one another. It is how we live for the good of one another. It is our faith working through love, as Paul said in chapter 5. And like there's, there's so many ways we go about bearing our burdens together, bearing one another's burdens as a family. And please don't take this as a complete list, but just to throw out some ideas, uh, we bear one another's burdens financially. As an example, we set aside 5% of our giving each and every month to an account that we call uh, hands and feet, where we can be the hands and feet of Jesus. And this is what goes to support the pantry, right, as we help bear the burdens of those in our community. It's what goes to provide benevolence, uh, to bear the financial burdens of those within our church family. But not just that, we also set aside an additional 10% into what we call helping churches thrive as we, uh, as we help... Um, bear the burden of those in our extended church family, of other churches. But not just that, we do this by, we do this by bringing meals to one another. Right? Every Friday for, I don't know, about the last year, we've been taking meals. Somebody in our church has been taking meals to Fred and Judy Hardman, who uh, were longtime members of Mount Prospect Bible Church and now members of, of Redemption. And many of you are like, I've never even heard of their names. I've never met them. And I guess what I want to encourage you is I think you want to meet them. Uh, they're pretty cool, and um, I got to see them uh, last week at a funeral, and it was, I don't know who was crying more, Judy or me, and I don't know if she was crying because she missed me or she had something in her eye, but I'm going to go with she was crying because she missed me because I missed her, and uh, so I'd love to encourage you to, to check out that meal train and, uh, and sign up to bring them a meal on a Friday just to go meet them and hear their story and help bear their burden with them. So not just that, we do this by... We do this by caring for one another, like especially in our small groups where we do this. We do this by loving on each other's kids. I mean, that's the whole premise of family ministry, isn't it? It's right, our entire church family caring for and ministering to the families of our church. We do this by serving each other on, on Sunday morning on a missional team, whether it was Chris brewing coffee this morning or welcoming people downstairs teaching our kids, leading worship, mixing sound. But we don't just bear one another's burdens with our hands, do we? We bear one another's burdens with our hearts as we pray with one another and for one another. Right? Remember that phrase we got, don't just say you'll pray, stop and pray. Like, don't say I'm going to pray for you. Like, stop right then and pray for them. We do this with our ears, listening to them, listening to their story, listening to their hurts, listening to their burdens. We do this with our, with our presence, just simply being with them. Sometimes that's what they need more than anything. And I was reminded of this yesterday. Um, yesterday, a mailman dropped off a package, and I didn't know what it was, so I opened it. Like, that's what you do with packages you don't know. I don't know why I said that. 
and uh, inside was my diploma, finally. And uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. Uh, I was it's sort of like, you know, when you go to close on a house, you're really not certain until you hand the key, get the keys. And I was still waiting for the registrar's office to be like, yeah, there's this one credit you missed. You're going to need to come back. And, uh, but we don't offer that class in, for another three years. But I, as I was looking at that diploma, like, I was reminded of, of how so many of you helped bear that burden with me and my family over these last, what feels like, 400 years that I've been in school, encouraging me, listening to me, whine and complain typically, reviewing my papers, and the number of times that Jill replaced the word that with who, that I was referring to people with that. Her red pen got empty from all those 400 years. But like it was too much to carry alone. And so what I know is like Jill's going to make me walk next month, for all those of you who are asking. But when I walk, I kind of feel like it's not just me walking, it's not just my family walking, it's like my entire church family walking, because it's one of those, we were all in that together. And uh, you're praying, helping. But again, like there's nothing new here. Like This is what families do, isn't it? We bear one another's burns. It should just be instinctual. It should be natural. Like, because as a church, right, when we see a need, what do we do? We meet the need, don't we? Like the needs within the church, they should be met by the church. But this mutual response for one another, it comes with a sense of personal reflection. Look here at verse 3. Verse 3, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something, you think you're hot stuff? When he is nothing, hate to break it to you, you're not, then guess what? You have only deceived yourself. But it's easy to deceive ourselves, isn't it? Thinking, thinking you're all that, thinking, well, at least I'm better than those who are burdened. I'm better than those that I've helped. It's easy to become conceited, boasting about all the good you've done, because that's what conceit does, right? Conceit compares, and conceit deceives. And he says in verse 4, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Hey, he's calling us to reflect not only on what we've done, but our motive for why we've done what we've done. Testing it, honestly, evaluating it, asking ourselves, like, are, you, are you living for the applause of others? Are you living for the approval of others? Or are you living for the good of others? Are you constantly comparing yourself to others in order to make yourself feel better about yourself? And the boasting that Paul refers to here, just to clarify, he's, he's not saying you should go brag about everything you did and you should just post that on social media all the time about how awesome you are. I kind of felt like I did that when I posted my diploma yesterday. Full disclosure. No, what he's doing is he's, he's saying we should recognize God's accomplishments of what he has done in you, what he has done through you by the power of his spirit. And, and this isn't some sort of humble brag that we're doing. No, this is, this is gratitude. Gratitude for God's work in our lives. And his point here is that it is gratitude for what God has done regardless of what God has done in and through others. It is not a competition. It is not a comparison. And he says in verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. That you said we were bearing one another's burdens. What's the deal? Ah, two different words. The burdens we bear with one another, they're heavy. They are beyond what we were intended or able to carry on our own. 
But the load that we carry ourselves, it, it is lighter. The, the word here refers to something more like a little backpack, maybe even just like a fanny pack. Remember those? And uh, nice and light. They're lighter and they're normative. They're expected. We see this word show up in Acts 27 where it's describing the cargo of a ship. A ship is designed to carry cargo. It's simply doing what it was intended to do. It's carrying out its intended purpose. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. We should expect that. And that's why Jesus, he told us in Luke 9, didn't he, that anyone that would come after him, that we should do a few things, right? That we should deny ourselves, something we have to do when we live for the good of others, and take up our cross, not occasionally, not when it's convenient, not when we don't have anything else to carry, but daily in order to follow him. Now, it'd be real great if we got to live the rest of our lives on an all-inclusive resort right on the beach, right? Yeah, the heads are shaking now. You're back with me. It would be great if we had a little porter to follow us along carrying that cross for us, and we could just look back and like, here's my cross. Thank you for carrying that for me. Like, it doesn't work like that, does it? The cross we carry, the load we bear, they are normative, though. We should expect them. We shouldn't be surprised by them. But also what he's saying here is that we shouldn't compare our cross and the load that we bear to others. Because when we do, again, we see one of two things happen. We're either going to think that their load is heavier and we are going to be conceited thinking, at least I'm not him. Or their load's going to be lighter and we're going to be envious. We're going to be frustrated. We're going to wonder why God is punishing us. So when the weight's too much, and, and it's going to be sometime. When it's beyond your ability to carry, I asked you one favor, and that was to be gentle. Can I ask you another favor? Can you ask for help? Can you be like those little kids downstairs who have no trouble asking for help? Somewhere along the way, we lost that. But I mean, when Jesus says to have the faith of a child, I mean, I think he means like a million things, but one of them might be, let's ask for help when we need it. Ask for help and don't give in to your pride thinking that you're strong enough. But also don't give in to your shame thinking you're not good enough for help because that's just not true. Let's bear that burden with you. Four ways we live for the good of one another. Here's number three. Let us share with one another generously. All right, let's share generously. Look here at verse six with me. This mutual responsibility says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Uh, full disclosure, I was really hoping we could just skip that verse. Uh, I was kind of hoping we could do like a John 5-4 with that one. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there is no John 5-4. It goes straight from John 5-3 to 5-5. And I don't want to skip it because it involves money. I'm fine talking about money. I, I want to skip it because how it involves me and your money. It's just awkward. Can we just say that up front? What it's saying is, as my church family, you who are taught... Um, you bear my family's financial burden as the one who teaches. Like, without your generosity, we don't make a mortgage payment. Without your generosity, we don't put food on the table. Without your generosity, a whole lot of things don't happen. And when he, he talks about this, about sharing all good things, like, don't hear what he's not saying. He's not talking about living a life of luxury. He's not saying you need to share with me a jet so we can fly to our second home on the beach somewhere. Right? When it's a Seattle day, we think about beaches. And here's the thing, like, I firmly believe ministry should never be about money. It should never be about more money. If I wanted more money, I should have stayed at Motorola. 
But I didn't, because this is where God called. And it's not about living in luxury, but it's also, it's also not the other side of the coin. It's also not about living in poverty. It's that it is, I think, what he's saying here about sharing all good things is about living comfortably, free of the worry of paying the bills, so we can focus on preaching the word. And when we, again, Paul said this for a reason, and he didn't tell us why, but I'm pretty sure they knew when he got this. And I would, I would bet that some of the churches in Galatia, they weren't caring for their pastors, not in the way that he had asked them to, not in the way that he hoped they would. And we don't know if this was based on circumstances or by choice. The hardship these last couple of years, you know, many churches are struggling financially. And thanks to our Helping Churches Thrive account, like we've been able to help bear some of that burden and generously share with their pastors when they were unable to. But yet I also know of far too many situations where this was done not based on circumstances, but based on choice. Where a church chose to pay their pastor less and less and less under the banner of keeping him humble imposing some sort of poverty gospel on their pastor that they would never think of imposing on themselves. And Paul's saying, that's not right. And uh, I'm glad that I can stand before you and say, that's not happening here. But that is our mutual responsibility to one another. But in the midst of this, um, hear me say, there was a lot of personal reflection that came out of this one. Uh, I didn't need an extra half verse for that. And two things kind of came to mind this week as I reflected on my role in this, and that is that I'm called to preach God's word faithfully, right? You share your finances with me, and I share God's word with you. Um, this is not transactional, though. Don't hear me say that. It's not like you're paying tuition to go to seminary. No, this is meant to be relational. We're teaching a timeless text here, but it was a text that was written to other people in another context that we're now applying to us in our context. Not to the church down the road, but to this church at this time. To better understand ultimately who God is and what it is that God has done and what it is that God has promised to do and how we as his people relate to a holy and righteous God. And the thing is, is if I'm not doing that, if I am not teaching you as your preacher, if I am not loving you as your pastor, then I'm not deserving of your generosity. And I guarantee you that is not lost on me for one second on Friday as I sit down to write my sermon or on Saturday afternoon because I'm not done yet or on Saturday evening because it was too long and a friend said I should cut a couple minutes. Every word is written out of gratitude and love for you. So preach God's word faithfully and the other reflection for me was to steward our finances faithfully. Like It's also not lost on me that nearly every dollar that we spend comes from you. And while, hear me say, I don't feel guilty about spending that money on paying our mortgage. Uh, I don't feel guilty about buying groceries. Um, I don't feel guilty about taking my family off for ice cream when we go on vacation. I am most certainly grateful. And I'm grateful for the way in which you have shared with and cared for our family ever so generously. And so I want to end awkward verse 6 by simply saying thank you. Thank you. And now I'd like to move on to point number 4, if you're okay with that. Four ways we live for the good of one another. Number 4, let us sow into the lives of one another patiently. All right, let us sow, let us pour into the lives of one another, but we need to do it patiently. 
And with this one, he kind of flips the script a little bit, and he begins with our personal responsibility, and he, and he begins with a warning here in verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Woo! Kind of like he got hot there again. Remember how like every once in a while we get yelling Paul in Galatians? I think we were kind of getting there. It's like on, on the soundboard, it was in the orange, maybe not quite the red, but uh, we've had some red passages. And here's what I, when I think about this, I like, remember when you were a teenager? And you know how when I say that, I always mean I'm talking about me, and I'm assuming at least one of you. Remember how when you were a teenager and you snuck in late, way late, like the sun was almost coming up late, and you thought, mom's asleep. I got in without her even knowing it. Like, I got away with it, right? Yeah, no. No. Don't be deceived into thinking you pulled a fast one on your mom. She will not be mocked. Uh, I found out one evening on my sister's porch in Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, not long after I graduated college, that she knew everything. She knew everything even before I got home. And mind you, this was before text messages, this was before cell phones, this was before social media. It's just like that intuition that a mother has of knowing her son somewhere they might not supposed to be. She will not be mocked. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here about God. He will not be mocked. He will not be fooled. You're not going to pull a fast one on God. Because guess what, God? God's a few things. If my job is to tell you about who God is, let me tell you who God is. God is omnipresent. It means God's everywhere, right? There is nowhere God is not. He is infinitely transcendent. He is over all, but he is also eminently present. He is in and within all. He's omnipresent. He is also omniscient. He is, nothing is hidden from God. He sees all. He hears all, and he is omnipotent. He has power over all. And so, hear me say, God will not be mocked. He will not be fooled. We will not pull a fast one on him. And then he goes on and he gives a farming illustration, right? Paul, he's speaking my language here again. He, he says in verse 7, he says, For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Whatever you plant, you will harvest. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his own flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Right? The type of seed you plant determines the type of plant that grows and the type of fruit it produces. Agriculture 101. If, uh, if you plant a kale seed, right, don't get upset at the plant when kale pops up. Do you plant kale by seed? Is it a plant that pops up? I really don't know. It's kind of like lettuce. Okay, I don't know. It's nasty. We talked about that. It's only good for smoothies. Fruit of the Spirit, not vegetables. But here's the thing, like if you want an apple tree, right, because you want, you want some fresh apple crisp in the fall, like plant an apple seed, not a kale seed. Make sense? So here's what he's saying. He's, he's offering a warning and an encouragement in here. And the warning is that sowing seeds of flesh, it, it produces works of the flesh, right? Living a life apart from God, uh, contrary to the way God has called us to live and created us to live, rejecting God and his word and his ways, it's going to lead to an eternity apart from God and reaping corruption. You are going to reap what you sow. But the other side of this is encouragement. And that if we live in the freedom Christ has secured for us on the cross, if we are led by his spirit, sensed to dwell within us, then the spirit is going to produce his fruit within you. That fruit we looked at a couple of weeks ago, visible, vibrant fruit, bright and beautiful fruit that draws us ever closer and closer to God's presence, greater intimacy with God because of His Spirit within us, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. And He follows this individual encouragement for us with a, with a mutual encouragement in verse 9. He says, and let us 
Not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Man, what a good verse for today when the low clouds of Seattle coming into Chicago kind of just make us feel a little weary, don't they? But like patience, we're not good with patience, aren't we? Thursday, I picked up the boys from school, and uh, we stopped at Home Depot on the way home because we got this little dead patch of grass in the front yard that's been there for like five years, and I finally decided it was time to do something. So we picked up some soil, we picked up some grass seed because I wanted grass to grow, not kale, and uh, we scattered the soil Thursday evening, and we spread the seed over it, and I did that because I knew on Friday it was going to rain. I didn't have to water it, God was going to water it, and so it rained on Friday, and we came home from school, and we're like, where's the grass? It's still just grass seed. I'm like, ah, Saturday. Saturday's going to be a beautiful, warm day. There we go. Saturday. No grass. And I guarantee you, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go home from church today after it's rained this morning, and we're going to go to the front yard, and the boys and I, we're going to be like, why don't we have AstroTurf on our front yard right now? It's been like 48 hours. Like, we're not patient people, are we? We're not patient people. That's one of those fruits of the Spirit, that, fruit of the spirit that's a, it's a, little, a little underdeveloped, isn't it? It's not like that massive pumpkin. It's kind of like that cute little ornamental pumpkin. And uh, not quite ripened, still maybe a little green just yet. And it's easy to grow weary when we can't see the fruit of our labor, isn't it? You can shake your head, yeah. It's easy to grow weary when we can't see the, the good that we've done. And we begin to wonder, like, am I, am I doing something wrong? Am I doing it the wrong way? What, what am I messing up here, God? And I found myself there wondering, like, wondering why there wasn't more growth, why there wasn't faster growth whether that was in my life or in our church's life, everything according to my expectations, right? My plan, my schedule, my timeline. And it's even harder when we compare ourselves to others, when you see others that are growing, other Christians, other churches. And I think it's in that point when we start that comparison again that we got to come back to where we started this morning in verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Because conceit compares, and it deceives. But hear me, Christianity is not a competition. It's not a competition with each other in this room. It's not a competition with the other three churches on this street corner, or the church down the street, or the church on the other side of the world. We are all in this together. Amen? We're on the same team. And so what that means is we get to celebrate each other's growth. We get to celebrate with them, and they get to celebrate with us. And I think we had a great example of that last Sunday. Last Sunday, we baptized three people on Easter Sunday, and that was great. Like, it was a celebration. But that celebration was with countless others who have invested in those three people. We got to see the fruit of the seed others planted and that others cared for and that others watered. And the other is true as well. Others are going to get to see the fruit of the seed that we planted and that we cared for. Because see, the truth is, um, seeds take time to germinate. Grass doesn't sprout in 48 hours. Plants take time to grow, and fruit takes time to ripen. And so we're not always going to see the fruit of the seed we planted. But the encouragement Paul gives us is that when we grow weary of doing good, and it'll happen if it hasn't yet, when we grow weary of doing good, if we remain faithful, if we remain faithful planting seed, lots and lots of seed, and watering that seed and caring for that seed, creating an environment 
for that seed to grow, environment that encourages growth, in due season we will reap if we don't give up, if we remain patient. Because ultimately, who's the one giving the growth, guys? God gives the growth. We create the environment, we plant the seed, we till the soil, we water, but God gives the growth. And he gives the growth, not according to our expectations, but according to his plan and his schedule and his timeline. And man, did God break me of this last year. It was weary. It was like not a day of Seattle. It was like a year of Seattle. The clouds were low, and I was wondering if the good we were doing was doing any good. Are we just spinning our wheels in the mud here? Are we actually going backwards? Because last year, uh, last year felt like winter to me. Uh, it felt like all God was doing was pruning branches, and man, some of them got close, and it hurt. And this year, this year feels like spring. It feels like spring because it feels like we're beginning to see the seeds that we planted years ago begin to sprout. Four years ago, we planted a seed of serving our community, Sarah and Umrith and I did, and we're seeing that sprout with uh, the pantry now. We've done it two months. We didn't just do it once, we did it twice. And we're going to do it a third time. We bought a whole bunch more diapers, so we got to do it a third time. We're seeing the seed of spiritual formation that, that was planted in my heart about two years ago uh, begin to bear fruit in the way this group that I'm taking through for the next three years as we learn to more faithfully follow the way of Jesus together. We're seeing the fruit of, uh, of, of the seed that we planted of laying a foundation of faith for our children in, in, our, in the way we're approaching family ministry, coming out of this first year of really stripping everything back and laying the foundation of those six pillars that we talked about with parents last fall. We're seeing the fruit of, of connection and community that we planted a couple of years ago. Remember in, uh, in February of 2020, we had this great idea of starting this thing called meetups. And then in March of 2020, they kind of got the door slammed back in their face. And we're like, that's a good idea. We're going to do it. And so we started doing it again. And it's like, it's taken us a while. But now, man, like, we got like three or four meetups scheduled right now. And it's just this like, the meetups is just this idea of like, let's get together to do the things you enjoy doing, but doing them together. It's sort of like, I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to do it anyway, but if you would all like to come, I'd love for you to come with me. There you go. That's a meetup. Anybody can host a meetup. Anybody can go to a meetup. So actually, so with that, if you ever come up to me and say, hey, have you ever thought about doing? I was like, no, I haven't thought about that, but I bet you would be great at hosting that. Let me show you how to host a meetup. And not just that, like the lobby that we did a couple months ago, that was all about our church family being able to connect and not have to shimmy through conversations in our hallway lobbies. I'm getting better at doing that, aren't I? <laughs> but hear me say, like, I firmly believe that as a church family, we are more united in who we are than ever before. And we needed a year of winter for that to take place. That year of winter as things lie dormant and we weren't quite sure what was happening, at least I didn't. And now some of the good that we were doing is doing good. And that's really encouraging even on a Seattle day like today. I believe that we're doing good. I believe that we're doing real good, and I believe that in due season we are going to reap if we don't give up and we simply remain patient and we remain faithful to what it is that God has called us to do. Amen? 
And then he closes in verse 10 saying, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to who? Everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Jesus, in that night before he uh, was crucified, he had a, he had a little get-together with the disciples, a, a last supper, so to speak. And he gave them a new commandment. He gave us a new commandment. And that commandment was to love one another. He says, just as I have loved you, like what you're going to see over these next few hours is going to blow your mind, the love I have for you. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then he says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers, if you have love for one another. And so we are called to love one another, to express that love by serving one another, doing good for one another. And that changes the way that we view who we are, the people in this room, right? The church is not strangers who gather to consume from one another, but siblings who gather to do good for one another. We are not strangers. We are brothers and sisters united in Christ. But I want to go back to that word that I had you read. The good we're called to do, the seed we're called to plant, the love we're called to share, it was never meant to be limited to just those within these walls. No, instead he says that as we have an opportunity, right, as God opens doors, we are to remain faithful in stepping through those doors and doing good for who? everyone we come in contact with and like wasn't that the whole reason jesus gave us the parable of the good samaritan redefining who our neighbor is redefining who it is we are called to love redefining what that love we are called to show looks like not 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 just to those that look like us and line up with us not just with those that we approve of and agree with but everyone we come across over the course of our lives to the extent that Jesus even said we are to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute you we are called to love and do good for everyone and a friend of mine got me the shirt that I'm wearing today a couple weeks ago as a as a reminder of that and it says Love thy neighbor. Sound well good with that one? Love thy neighbor. It says love, your, love thy immigrant neighbor, your black neighbor, your atheist neighbor, your Muslim neighbor, your depressed neighbor, your Asian neighbor, your LGBTQIA neighbor, your disabled neighbor, your indigenous neighbor, your Jewish neighbor, your political neighbor, even the neighbor that forwards you all the forwards you didn't want. Your elderly neighbor, your homeless neighbor, your Latino neighbor, your addicted neighbor, your millennial neighbor. And it ends with your fill-in-the-blank neighbor. And like chances are you cringed at one of those. It's okay. Chances are you cringed at one of those, but I think... Here's the thing. I think maybe that's the neighbor that the Holy Spirit is calling you to love today. I think that's what you're being called to reflect on today. That person that you think might not be worthy of love, of your love, of God's love, because of the choices they've made, because of the way they voted, because of the way they lived their life, because of where they came from, because of how they got here. But what I know to be true is that nobody is excluded from the love we are called to share because nobody is excluded from the love God shares. Amen? Nobody. 
And if you can hear me hear this, God loves you. God loves you. You know how I know? You want to take a guess how I know? He said so right here. The Bible tells me so. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, life that begins the day you believe and continues for the rest of this life on this earth and continues after our resurrection in the new earth. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him, of who he is, the Christ, the Messiah, and of what he came to do to die for our sin, to defeat death, and to give us the gift of life, whoever believes in that is not condemned. So here's my prayer for us. I got one more favor. My prayer is that we would be a people and that we would be a church marked by love. Marked by God's love, reflecting that love we have received, doing good for one another and for all others. Are you in on that? Yeah. One more time. You in on that? Yeah. Good. That's who we are. That's what we're going to do. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.